reading today from James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at the face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the word. Amen. Open at James 1.19 and also uh, the service, um, the outline the service booklet would be helpful if you've got access to um, seeing that. Now, most of you know, I think, that um, Mike and I are at uh, one when it comes to our love of the game of golf. We both belong to Teacher Gully Golf Club and um, try to play regularly, but there's one big difference between us, performance. Mike is good and I'm often in awe watching him play, how far he can hit the ball, things like that. As for me, I haven't quite figured out if there's a word in the English language yet that describes the quality of my game over the past months or so. Nevertheless, I still enjoy being out on the course and in the company of uh, other people um, except, I suppose, for one thing. The trouble I seem to experience all the time in trying to explain to others what I did or do for a job um, in such a way that it doesn't sort of immediately close down the conversation. I mean, I haven't asked Mike this, but I, I would have thought some most people would understand um, what he means, or what he meant if he said he was a pastor of a church. Still might close down the conversation. But what exactly is a Bible college lecturer? Or someone in theological education? Or a trainer of church workers? I can tell you the looks vary. 
when I've tried different things or you just get the simple oh um, as reaction. So recently I've just been sort of saying that I was retired and seeing where the, where the conversation went from there. <laughs> but that doesn't always help since the next thing often, next question often is, oh, what did you do for work? <laughs> Two weeks ago, <coughs> a person I was playing with asked exactly that. And I replied, this time that I'd been a lecturer in theology. However, this time I got a response that I had never had before in all the 18 months I'd been playing at the club. And it's a response, I think, that captures something of what I think is the underlying concern of James that we look at today. <coughs> this man came straight out and said, so that is why you don't swear. Of course, he didn't know what often goes on inside, inside my head and sometimes how much I would love to swear. <laughs> and I wasn't sure whether to take it as a compliment to my character or simply a recognition of the self-control I must have given the standard of play that he had seen. <laughs> Whatever it was, that man captured by his response, I think the essence of James' concern in this passage before us today, and indeed through the rest of his letter, well, what he does is really just fill out some of the themes that he introduces here. He obviously took my job to mean that I was religious in some way and connected my religion as the basis for my behaviour. He was right, at least in that instance. And James' concern is that this might be true also of the people that he was writing to. The thought in the passage, in its elements, is not necessarily easy to connect. <coughs> there are lots of different concerns uh, that he's put together. But I think that's because his overall concern in this passage only comes out at the end, in verse 27, when he says, real religion, or religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, is this, and goes on. The concern of James is that the people of God might demonstrate <coughs> a pure and undefiled religion, one that not only professes religious belief, and perform certain religious stuff, but works itself out in changed lives. And hence, that's why I've called the title of this section today, <coughs> in your outline, The Practice of True Religion. True religion, that which is pure and undefiled before our Father, involves both our speech how we speak to each other and our actions, what we do or how we treat people. And what I've done in the outline is to group together the various things that James says about each one in the passage. First, the practice of religion which is pure um, and undefiled, not just a hollow expression, uh, of our belief, will be evident in our speech. So in verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. 
the overriding concern here is not so much um, in terms of exactly what we say or don't say, uh, but in terms of the self-control that we have over our speech. Such control, James says, is evident by being quick to listen and slow to speak. Now, I think most of us realise, don't we, the wisdom of these words. And certainly, in terms of Jewish thought, James is saying something, nothing new. The control of our speech and the wisdom of listening before speaking is uh, clearly evident in the Old Testament. Take, for example, Proverbs 17, 27 and 28. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought to be wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongue. Why is this so? Well, firstly, I think it's so because in being quick to listen, um, that helps us to try and understand, doesn't it, what other people are actually saying before we reply. I've been guilty many times in a conversation of presuming I knew what another person was uh, talking about only to discover that I'd not really listened to the person and asked some clarifying questions before I blurted out what I thought was a relevant reply. I thought I had the solution, but really I hadn't understood the problem. Or the topic of conversation was not what I thought at all, but I hadn't listened long enough to find out. And particularly for, let me say, uh, as a husband and father of four daughters, sometimes the solution was not what was wanted at all. Rather, just an ear to listen and share the problem. But there's a second and more important reason that Proverbs and James urge us restraint with our words. And that is the potential our words have to damage one another. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and then James adds, and slow to become angry. This seems to be one of the real concerns for the people that he is writing to. There are problems around, revolving around how we speak that are woven throughout the letter. James has a whole section on speaking in chapter 3, but he also mentions things in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. It's woven throughout the letter. There are deep divisions among the believers he was writing to. Divisions, it seems, especially between rich and poor, which we'll look at a bit more next week. Chapter 4 mentions fights and quarrels, gossip and slander. The potential to damage people with our words rather than build them up is enormous. And the reason is obvious, isn't it? We all know it to be true. James says it here. Human anger simply does not produce God's righteousness. That is the righteous standard of life that God desires. We profess to be God's people. So we, above all, need to be careful when it comes to anger. And I don't know whether this is your perception, but my perception is that this is becoming more difficult because our society seems to be becoming more angry overall. The prevalence of road rage and domestic violence and things like that that we know about seem to be just indicators 
of how angry our society is becoming. Now, some in commenting on this passage, of course, have raised the question of righteous anger. After all, Jesus was angry at times, wasn't he? For example, when the, the way people were using the temple for business, making profit, etc., uh, how it was being misused, and often at the hardness of heart of the Pharisees in their unbelief. And Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. So there seems to be an anger which is legitimate. And the fact that James says, be slow to become angry, probably indicates this as well. Nevertheless, the anger and resulting speech he was witnessing amongst God's people was anything but this. And I think, if we're honest, <coughs> that is so for most human anger, ours included. The reason's simple. Most of our anger, most human anger, arises out of a focus on our needs and wants, doesn't it? We want something, but we don't get it. Someone gets better treatment than we do. Or says something to us that puts us down or hurts us. We want others to do something for us, but we can't control them. Might attempt to. And so we get angry. As one writer says, angry speech is part of the temptation to seek vengeance as a deep concern of both James and Paul. Now, lest you think that this concern with speech is a separate issue from the demonstration of true religion mentioned at the end of the passage, I want you to note that James comes back to it, you see, in verse 26. He says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion's worthless. That is pretty strong language. And so his overall point here is that the practice of true religion in our speech means always keeping a tight rein on our tongue. Now, when I was growing up, I remember my mother saying to me numerous times, and I've said it to my own children, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. How many of you have heard that before? How many young people have heard that before? <laughs> I wasn't quite sure if it's still around or not. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. It was meant, of course, to encourage us that names or words can be ignored and that we should ignore them and if we do, they won't do us any harm, unlike the nature of physical harm. But in reality, James will make clear in graphic language in Chapter 3 just how damaging to our relationships words can be, and particularly angry words, where we often say things that later we deeply regret, things that we've said, let's say, in the heat of the moment. So, friends, the practice of our religious belief, which is acceptable to God, begins with our speech. Being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, and if you're like me, for most of us, that's hard work. That constantly 
needs attention. But speech is only the first part. Even more so, the the genuineness of our allegiance to God is to be evident in our actions. Verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he is like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom continues in it not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They'll be blessed in what they do. I think verse 21 acts as a kind of transition in James here, uh, moving from the need for cautious and self-controlled speech to then the need for action and putting into practice and accepting the implanted word, he says, which can save you. In some ways, the language, I think, echoes the teaching of Jesus in the parable of the sower. You might remember. You know, the word is the seed in the parable of the sower. It's planted in various types of ground. And initially, apart from that planted on the path, things look good. But in the end, it's only the seed sown in good soil that will save. Because it's the only one that actually produces change that produces a crop. Now, by addressing his readers in verse 19 as my dear brothers and sisters, I think James believes that the word has actually taken root in his readers. But the evidence that this is true will be borne out in practice, evident in their speech, but also, and necessarily so, in their actions. If our profession is real, our religion true, then we must be doers of the word and not just hearers. To think one can hear and not do is to be under the greatest self-deception, James says. To come to church, to hear the Bible preached, even to read it yourself and pray, and yet be largely unchanged by it, or to have little desire to live according to what it says, is to be utterly self-deceived in terms of your relationship with God. It is, in fact, to suffer what I would call a ridiculous identity crisis. I think that is the point of the illustration of the mirror in verses 23 and 24. The mirror in the ancient world was a piece of um, polished metal, Um, which people used to inspect their body and decorate it. Hence, I don't think what is being referred to here is just a fleeting look at your face, a glance, which is easily forgotten. Some commentators suggest that's what's going on, but I don't think that's what is going on. Rather, I think James knows that people use the mirror quite intently, and here he uses the word, in verse 26, when he refers to the perfect law, looking intently. And his point is to outline how ridiculous it is for someone to hear God's word but not do it. It's as ridiculous as a person who sees his own face in the mirror and then can't remember a thing about it. 
That's crazy. And yet the history of God's people from Old Testament times to the present is riddled with people who do just that. They hear God's word. In the Old Testament, they performed the sacrifices, did all those sorts of things that the sacrificial law said. In modern times, people still come to Holy Communion. But what they hear goes in one ear and out the other. Brother James says, we are to be people who are continuing to do the perfect law that gives freedom in verse 26. Now this expression, the perfect law that gives freedom, is unique to James and is virtually equivalent to his earlier references to uh, the word of truth in verse 18 that gives birth or the implanted word that can save you in verse 21. I'll have a little more to say about that next week um, since James mentions the expression again, gives a little more detail in chapter 2, which we'll be looking at. For now though, notice that the expression is not the law of perfection, but the perfect law of freedom. Continuing to do is not talking about perfection. It's talking about a dedication to put into practice what we read in God's word, to take it seriously, to pray earnestly that God might help us through his spirit and change us. Coming back to the incident I mentioned at the beginning um, about golf, is it true that I never swear? Well, it depends on what you mean by swearing. There are, of course, some words I would never say that seem to be regarded almost as common speech today. But there are other expressions that I know my wife, Meredith, would prefer that I did not say. Have I said things to my wife and children that I should not have said, often in the, be often in the heat of the moment? Regrettably so. Have I done things or neglected to do things uh, that have had more to do with the ways of the world than the life of Jesus and his apostles? Indeed I have. But friends, we're not called to continue to do the law of perfection, but to continue to do the perfect law that gives freedom. A law that is perfect because it reveals the goodness of God's character, but a law that gives freedom because it proceeds out of the life of Jesus. His death on the cross and resurrection to a new life that provides forgiveness for my failings and the strength and perseverance of his Holy Spirit to continue until the work that needs to be done in me is finally complete. What a marvellous grace that is. A grace that continues in our frailty and sinfulness to help us be doers. Not just hearers. Well, James sums up this whole section 
uh, with two practical statements of the essence of true religion, one negative and one positive, in verse 27. Please look at it. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted um, by the world. Negatively, I'll take the negative one first. The genuine believer who is a doer, not just a hearer, aims at keeping oneself from the pollution of the world. Now, the scriptures, of course, use the word world in a number of ways. Sometimes in a good way, when it refers to God's creation of the world. Sometimes in a neutral way, simply referring to the way things are in the created order. And sometimes in a very negative way, as it does here. Referring to the world as the created order under the rule of Satan, in absolute opposition to God and the way he wants us to live. It's a common theme amongst the apostles. Paul, for example, in Romans 12, says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. John, in 1 John, says that we're to overcome the world. And Peter, in his second letter, refers to escaping the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. And here in James, if we go back to verse 21, he's already referred to the world without, I think, mentioning the word in those words, all its moral filth and evil so prevalent. It's strong language. Let me ask you, friends, is that the way you see the world? full of moral filth and evil, so prevalent and common. Do we understand the danger the world has to draw us away from God? To deceive in ever so subtle ways, to rationalise and justify whatever we desire. You know, one of the interesting things when it comes to the current debate about Islam in our society is to know that Muslims think that the Christian God can't be true because of the moral bankruptcy of the West. That's what they think. Now, of course, they obviously line up the West with Christianity, which is a mistake. And they point most of the time, to the rampant sexual immorality of the West. And sometimes I wonder if they see it clearer than we do. Whether we are so blinkered to the moral filth present in our Western society and hence become far more vulnerable, vulnerable to its influences than we like to think. Well, that's the negative side. On the positive side of things, James states that the genuine believer who is a doer, not just a hearer, aims at looking after the poor and vulnerable. Well, that is the way I think the reference to orphans and widows in their distress should be understood. It's a really important point, since in the Old Testament there are commands aplenty to provide for widows and orphans and not to take advantage of them. 
God's even described in Psalm 68 verse 5 as a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. These people were both, in Old and New Testaments, people who had little means of support, who were very vulnerable to the unscrupulous person who could easily take advantage of them and did so. The prophets are full of stuff like that. God was their champion and his people were meant to be his hands and feet in taking care of them. But how are we to translate this command in our context today? It's not easy. We are in such a very different situation. On the one hand, in our context, we have a social welfare system that provides basic needs for many. In economic distress, we thank God for it. And at least in theory, legal aid to those poorer who may need justice. On the other hand, we're so much aware of the global poverty around the world among so many and the immense gap between the rich and poor, the haves and have-nots. So I've sort of summarised this generally, I think, for us today as a responsibility to look after the poor and vulnerable as we're able. In a modern democracy like our own, I think that will mean giving uh, both money and time uh, on both a a local and global level to those who support the the poor, homeless, disabled, distressed and helpless. But secondly also to advocate for government policy that can give aid and provide support at a far greater level than any of us, even as a church or individuals, will ever be able to do. What I think is disturbing for me today, (coughs) particularly at the policy level, is the seeming lack of a Christian voice, a strong Christian voice in economic areas. Christian groups lobby strongly against things like gay marriage, abortion, euthanasia. Fair enough. But where is the same strength of Christian voice that urges our governments to allocate more resources to support the homeless? Provide a better legal aid system since I think it's fairly well known that our present system favours the rich and rarely provides justice to the poor. Where is the Christian voice that speaks out about the reduction in overseas aid? And I know the issue of asylum seekers is a difficult one with the underlying problem of people smugglers. Uh, But I must admit, I find it hard to see um, how the recent federal government decision to say that all people who come by boat, for whatever reason, can never, ever settle in Australia, even if they are or were proven to be genuine refugees, has anything to do with the care of the poor and the vulnerable. You see, looking after the poor and vulnerable is not an an optional extra for James when it comes to genuine faith. It's an aspect of the pure religion that the Father finds acceptable and without which our profession of allegiance to Jesus is worthless.
true religion, genuine faith, dinky-dye Christianity, if you like, involves a devoted response to what we hear in God's word. The word implanted that has given us birth into God's family and saves us. It is a response to continually seek to apply what we hear and read to everyday life. It is what we say to one another and what we say to one another, exercising self-control that's quick to listen, slow to speak and particularly slow to get angry. And then in what we do, careful to do everything to rid ourselves of the world's mild pollution and to exercise care in every way we can for the poor and vulnerable. Since we profess to serve a God who is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. Friends, may God strengthen us through his spirit as a church and as individual believers to be devoted to these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks today for your word. We thank you for that word, that gospel truth which has given us birth into your family. We thank you for that word that you've implanted in us that can save us. But we pray above all else, Lord, that that word may prove to be real and true in our lives by what we say and by what we do. We know that um, really this is beyond us without your help. And so we do ask for your strength, the strength of your spirit, the the perseverance to continue in that perfect law that gives freedom. And we ask it in Jesus' name.